Good morning, class. It is uh, Sunday morning, September 22nd. You have tuned in on your radio dial to our class, The Least of These. And we are spending a lot of foundation at this point in the class, lay, uh, spending a lot of time laying a foundation to explore the implications of Jesus' phrase in Matthew 25 and a picture of the final judgment. As much as you did it unto the least of these, you did it unto me. And what we're going to move in this class is what are some of the implications for our relationships within the church. But we're really spending a lot of time teasing out this whole doctrine of the final judgment. How many of you have um, done an extensive study of it? Have been a part of an extensive study of it? So just frank, I really haven't. So all the verses that we're looking at uh, is not something in 35 years of ministry I've ever taken a, a serious look at. We sort of know there's a final judgment, but we haven't fleshed out a lot of the details. Um, so, for example, I was thinking the other day in my preparation, how many different words are used descriptively of this event? So you have one event, the parousia, the appearing of Jesus, the revelation of Jesus Christ, the apocalypse. Uh, we, we tend to use the phrase... Don't worry, it's not the end of the world, as if the end of the world is bad. Well, it's bad for some people, and it's the best there is to come for the rest of us, for those who belong to Jesus. But this one event has many, many words annexed to it. And that shouldn't surprise us. When God talks about something extremely important, you get perspectives of it from many, many, many different angles. So, just think about the... And I've... I've um, well, you tell me, I've got three lists here, and I'll ask you to put a label on each of the list regarding everybody, regarding unbelievers, and regarding believers. So you need to label these, this will be on the pop quiz today. Here are some of the words describing this event, eternal torment, wrath, receiving in their persons the wrath of God, surprise, don't let that day overtake you as a surprise. Sudden destruction. Unexpected departure. Those are the ones that are calling Jesus Lord, Lord. You prophesied in your name because Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. A sudden departure. Tribulation and distress. Those two words together for those in this category. Retribution. We'll see that in our, our, the first text we'll read this morning. So what column is, what words are these describing what type of people? Unbelievers. You don't want to be in this, do you? Do we, do we really believe in the wrath of God? Do we really believe in the doctrine of hell? Do we really believe in eternal torment? Yeah. So our lives should reflect it. And at least our concern and our care for people that are lost. Uh, we have a cluster of words. Expose. I'm thinking of this number of times. This event reveals the secrets people have. There will be no secrets. Everything's exposed. Judgment for both believer and unbeliever. We're all standing for the judgment seat of Christ. Everyone will bow down and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, Philippians 2. You'll give an accounting for yourself. That's one of the, one of the reasons why we're spending the time on this. We're going to stand before the Lord and give an account for what we did. Fire uh, for us, that for um, everyone will, will see the fire, what's going to be burned? The earth is going to be burned. 
I guess we'll see it. There'll be a repaying for everyone for what they've done in the body. There'll be a revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ in all his glory. Every, every eye will see him. Nothing will be hid from his sight. And then another cluster of words describing believers. This will be the revealing of the sons of God. I'm thinking of Romans 8. Who the sons and daughters of God will ultimately be revealed. And the creation is longing for this event. It wants to see, there they are. And all their, this is what Jesus does as broken sinners. There'll be grace. We're going to see this morning in 1 Peter 1.15. The grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Vindication. Uh, glory and marveling. We'll, do the, we'll be marveling at Jesus. It'll be a reunion. 1 Thessalonians 4. We'll meet in the air those who preceded us in death. There'll be a reunion. It'll be sight for us. We'll see God face to face in Jesus Christ. The whole creation will be recreated as will we be. Our bodies will be transformed into glorified bodies. 1 Corinthians 15. He gives us the victory through Jesus Christ. That is, an, that is ultimately an allusion to the second coming, the parousia, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. There will be rewards and Revelation 19, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Feast! So there's a whole range of things covering this one event. Let's continue our study. And I, um, I'm on, I think it's page, let's see, one, two, three, four. We're down at the bottom of five. Do you need a handout? Oh, you got one. Go. And um, we're, we're going to look at 2 Thessalonians 1, 5 to 10. Just above it, that 1 Thessalonians passage, where we see the word reunion there. It's those who have fallen asleep are reunited with those who are caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And then the next uh, beginning of chapter 5, 1 Thessalonians, there's surprise for unbelievers, sudden destruction. That's the worst kind of surprise that you want. Oh my goodness. Now in my heart of hearts, I, unbelievers will know they did not honor the God they knew was there. Sudden destruction. Okay, so, somebody read for us 2 Thessalonians 1, 5 to 10, and be looking for some words that we could add to our list. Thanks, Chad. Remember the context. Paul plans the church in Thessalonica. There's immediate persecution. Immediate persecution. How are you feeling about the people that killed your loved ones in this persecution? How are you feeling about the people that have stripped you of your job, burned your house down, or whatever it is? How are you feeling about them? Do you have mixed emotions? On the one hand, what are you supposed to do to your enemies? Love them. Turn the other cheek. Somebody famous said, pray for your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Right? On the other, 
it is fair to ask what? Well, it's fair to, to want justice for this. And so this passage is functioning how in the hearts and minds of the Thessalonian believers? In view of this persecution, how is it supposed to function? Would you want to know that these people are going to answer to Jesus for what they're doing to you? Yes. And should Jesus choose not to save them, what would you want to know about their eternal destiny? You want them to get what they deserve? That's what Paul's saying. Jesus, Jesus takes notice of those who are punishing you, and there will be a day of accounting. So what are some of the words we could tease out of here to add to our list on either side? What are some of the words you see? Vengeance. Vengeance? Over here, vengeance? Sorry? Suffering for believers and root to the parousia. There'll be suffering. We're going to add vengeance over here. Sorry? Affliction. Let's put that next to suffering. What's some other words? Relief. Relief for those who are being persecuted. This is relief. Whew. Now you get a picture of this in Revelation, don't you? Of the souls who were, who were martyred for the, for the sake of Jesus. What are they doing under the altar of God? They're crying out, How long till you avenge our blood? Is it okay for them to cry out that in glory? Apparently so. It's written in Holy Scripture. How long, O Lord? How long? How long? And the answer is until the full number of God's elect are brought in. That's right, isn't that the answer? Any other words from this text? I heard eternal destruction. Eternal destruction, good. Sudden destruction, eternal destruction. So this is really one of the only texts I know of in the New Testament that is so specific that God is going to repay those who hurt Christians. Very specific. And it's supposed to bring comfort. It shouldn't, it shouldn't make us want any less the salvation of our bitterest enemies. Pray for them, etc. Very interesting passage, isn't it? And Jesus comes to be glorified in his saints. He'll be glorified in you. Amazing. More of that among all who believed. Okay, 1 Peter 1.13. What's the operative word here? Somebody read it for us. Got a few? Sure. Therefore, prepare your minds for action and be sober-minded. Set your code fully on the grace that will be brought to you in the revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay, an allusion to the revelation of Jesus Christ, the second coming, the parousia, the appearing of Jesus. What's coming to you at that event? Grace. 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 What grace? What's the grace coming to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ? Probably an umbrella word for all of these things. The grace of a transformed body. The grace of retribution to those who hate you. The grace of seeing Jesus face to face. The grace of being rewarded for those you didn't, those things you did in the body. The grace of being ultimately declared the sons and daughters of God, the forgiven ones. Because in first, if you just look at the first eight verses of 1 Peter, you see salvation is past, present, and future. It's, it's something accomplished by Jesus in the past. You are being saved in the present. And the ultimate, uh, the ultimate fruit of your salvation is yet to be revealed on that great day. The grace to be brought you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So what's the practical impact of that? 
grace is being brought to at the second coming? What's the practical impact according to the verse? How you think about it. Yeah. Mind, prepare, prepare your mind, mind for action. Being sober-minded, set your hope, confident expectation. So this is so down here I have how we're supposed to live in light of these things. We are given the blessed hope Jesus is appearing. Confident certainty on judgment day, if we've trusted in Jesus, we belong to him forever. We should be uh, living confidently for him. Sobriety. And as we've been saying through some of these parables, stewardship. Okay, a little bit longer passage, same theme. It's amazing how much the Bible talks about this in virtually uh, all all of the epistles. Somebody read for us. It's a little longer. I might stop you as we go. 2 Peter 3, 1 to 13. Okay, just pause. Sorry, Pat, just one second. So what he's going to talk about is what are the two sources of what he's going to talk about? According to that. The prophets and the teaching of Jesus. Do you think they're going to be aligned? Yes, they have to be because the self-consistency of the word of God revealing the self-consistency of God himself. Continue, Pat. Thank you. Let's push pause there. So what is specific uh, content or object of the scoffing, of the scoffers? What's the direct object of their scoffing? What's that? Christ isn't coming. What's the evidence? Every day looks like the next. Go back in history. It's all the same. Human beings, they get, they're born, they live, they work, they marry, they have kids, they die. It's, that's the way it's always been. And that tends to put people to what? <clears throat> to sleep. It puts them to sleep. Okay? And Peter says, excuse me, do your earth history. There's actually an event in the past that serves as a paradigm for what's coming in the future. What's that event? The flood. The flood. What happened in the flood? Everyone was destroyed. The earth was destroyed except God's chosen people. And there was a severe judgment on the earth. Okay? You're not sure? Go to the Grand Canyon. There. Now I'm going to get into a little flood geology here, so it's a little dangerous because I'm not a scientist, but but I'm okay. That's right. The earth bears the marks of a catastrophic flood. But we don't have to have that. We have it in the Word of God alone. The earth the first time was destroyed with? Water. Water. Second time? 
Who says? God. The Word of God promises this. Okay? So the people that are scoffing, life goes on, da 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 are overlooking one serious fact, and it's putting them to sleep with respect to another very serious fact. Okay? And that day will be marked by, that's the end of verse 7, that day is marked by judgment, judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. Is that okay? <coughs> I mean, on the one hand, tragically awful. On the other, God must do that to remain faithful to himself. If he was not a just judge, he would not be a good God. And everyone knows this, believer or unbeliever. Everyone knows intuitively what justice is. We scream for justice. We want the bad guy to get their deserves. I always marvel at Hollywood. Hollywood is largely atheistic. But they love to make movies where they, the bad guy does really bad things. And what are you hoping during the entire movie? That he gets his just deserves. So Hollywood, atheist worldview, they know what justice is. <laughs> Why? Because they're made in the image of God. It just screams the image of God. Okay. Um, Pat, I'm going to give you a break from reading. Somebody give us 8 through 10 there. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on them will be exposed. Thanks, Frank. So what seems to be a long delay to our human estimation, right? Fair enough. Is what in God's estimation? What seems to be a long time is a day. <laughs> and that our temptation to say, God, you're slow about your promise to bring about this final day of judgment is answered how in the text? I'm not slow. I've got my purposes, which is ultimately, and it's not explicit, but it's implied in the text, his glory. Saving his people. From a human perspective, what does God want from you, according to the verse? Repentance. Repentance. Same as Paul preached on Marcel, God is now declaring that all men must repent. Every human being is required to repent. Turn from themselves to God. Turn from sin to Jesus and salvation. Okay? Yes. He wants us to go and share the gospel because he's, he's waiting that's right. right. We share the gospel with people. It's right there in the text. That's right. How are they going to know? We share the gospel with them. Thank you. Didn't say it. Needs to be said. Needs to be said. And Frank read there, the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. Who's going to need the sun and the stars and the moon and the new heavens and the new earth? Nobody. Why? Jesus, his glory radiates the entire thing. There's not going to be any sun, not going to be any moon, not going to be any stars. The stars, poof, apparently burned up. And then someone read for us, and what, what we're going to get now are the moral implications for those of us who believe this. It's 11 and thir- through 13. Here's what this requires of you. Remember, all revealed doctrine requires something of you. 
Doctrine isn't given just to tantalize your mind. It's given to, to, uh, to change your life, to change the way you live. Who would read that for us, 11 to 13? Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Okay, so what things are being said in, in contrast and juxtaposition in these verses? What's that? Okay, waiting and watching. Hastening. How do you hasten the day of the Lord? Sharing the gospel. Praying. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come. And living righteously. So there's coming a day of burning, right? Are you going to be burned up in that final destruction? No. What do you want to see burned up in your life? Useless things. Wasteful things. Things that aren't going to redound to God's glory in the end. There's a lot more we can say about that. Let's go to 1 John 4, 17 to 19. Sorry, just, let's just make sure we're clear on verse 13. This earth is going to be burned. In an instant, I think, it's going to be remade a new, new earth. Heaven is coming to earth. We're not going to live in clouds and harps floating around. With these no, everything's going to be tangible in the end. It's a return to paradise but better because there's no possibility of sinning and forfeiting it. We're going to live on a renewed earth, trees, grass, really good golf courses. <laughs> Rivers. My only regret, as far as I read scripture, is it doesn't look like there's going to be any waves for body surfing. Now, oh, oh well, I guess in heaven it'll be okay. In glory it'll be okay with me. We have the river of life. We have the trees for the healing of the nations. Okay. So we're, we're headed for glorified, indestructible bodies on an earth. Are we going to eat and drink? Yes, Jesus did with the disciples on the beach. The marriage supper of the Lamb is going to have the best food and wine in the history of the world. Is he going to drink wine with them? Lord's Supper? I earnestly desire to drink with you. It's going to be fulfilled in the new heavens and the new earth. Everything's pointing that way. So we are a people who are teleological. Everything about us is purposeful. It's moving towards the end. Christians live want a fancy word to impress people eschatologically we live in light of the end we live with, as if there's a song from the 60s I think it was the Hollies nah 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 live for today yeah in some sense Jesus says live for today today has enough trouble don't worry about tomorrow we're not living just for today everything we do counts for eternity we're living eschatologically we're living in view of, that's what the text is is live in view of this okay just jump in if you want to add to the discussion Somebody read 1 John 4, 17 to 19. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also we are in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. Thank you, Lisa. So very pastoral here, right? We're thinking about the day of judgment. 
What's the word John wants you to live with in light of that? What's the operative word here? Confidence. Confidence. Confide with faith. Trust. That what is this day going to be for you? Your coronation day. Okay? And if we're being very honest with ourselves and sober-minded and we look at our lives, that could provoke what in our hearts in light of the judgment? Fear. Of what? Of what? Fear of punishment? Am I really a believer? Is it okay to question yourself that way? Didn't somebody say last week, Paul exhorts us, was that you, Pat? Examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Okay? But where does God want you waking up in the morning, throwing your feet on the floor, as it were? Deal with your fears, but you're ultimately living in love. And the operative phrase there is, because as he is, so also are we in this world. What doctrine is that alluding to? Union with Christ. As Christ is, what is Jesus right now? He's accepted by the Father in a glorified body with nothing to prove, nothing to lose. So are you except for the body, the glorified body. You're as safe as Jesus is. This is the way Paul reasons it in in, uh, Ephesians 2. He made us alive together with Christ, raised us up together with Christ, and seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. He raised us from the dead, made us alive in Christ. What's true of Christ is true of you. That's the doctrine of union with Christ. By faith, you're united to Jesus. You're no longer united to Adam in death and condemnation. You've been transferred. You're united to Jesus Christ. What's true of Christ is true of you. This is the doctrine of union with Christ. I think that's what John is alluding to there, because as he is, so also are we in this world. Extremely. Sorry. Is that also... Yes. And that's telling us how to do it, Pat. That's Colossians 3, 1 through 3. If you've been raised up with Christ, what doctrine? Union with Christ. Keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above. So you can't think on that which you don't know about. We've got to know about that and think about that. Good. So where, where the mind goes, the body goes. Very, very good connection there. Now, in between 1 John 4 and Revelation 20 is Revelation 19, the marriage supper of the Lamb. So just write that in there. I alluded to it already, but put that in there. Should have been on the handout. Apologies. I'll blame my secretary, which, of course, I have none. All of this is my own work. (laughs) Chris doesn't have to do this. She's got her hands full with other stuff. Okay, Revelation 20, 7 to 10. Who would read that? years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them, and the devil who had, to, who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Thanks, Jim. So this is why the end of the world is not the worst thing that could happen. It's the best thing that can happen. The devil's going to get thrown into the lake of fire. Hallelujah. Right? 
And, and in this whole context, we really shouldn't have skipped 19 because in 19, you got all this praise, all this glory to the Lamb. Our God is reigning. That's really the point of the book of Revelation. This is, if, if we saw evil for what it really was, we would just be like backward somersaults. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Okay. Um, Revelation 22, 12 to 15. Next page. Thanks, Nate. So you read that, and what question do you want to ask yourself? Joe? Is my name in that book? Okay? You've got to ask yourself that question. Do I know Christ by faith? Have I given my life to Him? Have I asked Him to save me and take the throne of my heart? Don't leave today if that hasn't happened in your life. Again, who wants death to be destroyed? Any sane thinking person, this is a great day. This is a great day. A horrifying day, also. Because unbelievers are going right into the lake after the devil is thrown in. It is a little um, disconcerting for me when it says, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Yes. Because our doctrine, like what we believe is always, it's not about what we do and don't do, it's about what we believe and what Christ has done for us. So yes. it seems to be a little, uh, I guess, if you're reading it right without context. Yeah. So we, we really spent a whole last class addressing that. And um, we, we are clearly going to be judged, believers are, for what they've done. Uh, there's no judgment for our sin. Christ has borne it, but there's a day of accounting for the quality of the stewardship of our lives, giving account for every careless word spoken. And I confess that there, um, clearly the Bible teaches rewards for believers in varying degrees, just as there will be, I'll say it right because somebody told me I said it wrong last week, there will be varying degrees of punishment in hell for unbelievers. But we're, we're going to give an account, and there will be, um, be rewards and true believers are, aren't um, initially motivated by that, although Jesus, I think, uses it as a, as a point of motivation, which is why we're talking about this. There's a judgment day. We're all standing for the judgment seat of Christ. It's not the basis of our salvation. It's the proof, as we're going to see as we go through the study of Lisa, it's the proof of true faith. And this is, as I said last week, it's the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. It has two sides. God preserves his own. Because ultimately your salvation is about God giving you to Jesus. And he's going to do it. When he decides to give a gift to his son, he's no Indian giver. That's why the, the doctrine that you can lose your salvation is just ludicrous. Your salvation is about God giving you to Jesus and you purchasing him, you, Jesus purchasing you for himself. Nothing's going to stand in the way of that. 
from a human, from a divine point of view, it's the it's a perseverance of things. We persevere. And embedded in that are warnings not to fall away. Think of the book of Hebrews. There are warnings. You've got to keep at it. How do you keep at it? Looking to Jesus, asking for grace, clinging to the one who will preserve you. Okay? So, you, as I did last week, you're not off the hook. You're not saved. You can't kick up your feet and say, now I do nothing. No. You work out your faith with fear and trembling. For God is at work in you, but to willing to work for his good pleasure. Philippians 2, 13 and 14. So we sort of talked a lot about that last week, and we're going to actually come back to it too. Lisa, it's a fair question. I think it's a question any serious believer asks when they come to the doctrine of the final judgment. Yes, Joe? Um, I just hit, hit me for the first time. So when we try to lovingly encourage one another in various things, part of it is because we desire Christ be honored in our behavior. Part of it is for that person's good for their relationship with God then. Part of it is that person's good for their ultimate Right. Yeah. I mean, is, that, is that true? Yeah. yeah. If my wife loves me, she's going to say, well, stop doing that. It's not good for you. It's not good for you in the end. It's not good for you now. It's not good for our relationship. It has eternal consequences. That's what you're saying. Yes. We live eschatologically in view of the end. Okay? History is not cyclical. It's linear. It's, it has an edge. It's going to one final accounting, day of accounting. Secrets are going to be revealed. Motives. Well, we'll see that as, as we move through the material. Uh, have we done 22, 12 to 15? Yes. We read that one? No. I think we need yes. 22, 12 to 15. Thanks, Mary. I think that was, was that Mary? Uh, so, warning. We, sh- we need to be warned. Promises. What's the wonderful promise of the gospel here? Oops, are washed. How do you get your rope washed? The blood of Jesus. His death is the only basis in which we make a claim on the presence of God. And having made that claim, in light of that, we're going to live in light of what, Beloved. Jesus is coming with his recompense with me. He's going to repay everyone for what they've done. Everything you and I do right now counts for eternity. I mean, we just don't believe it, but life is so short. Doesn't seem that way. Doesn't seem that way. And these doctrines are saying, don't go by what seems. Go by what God has revealed in his word about what's ultimately true. Okay, I've got a supplemental handout. Beat this horse even more. It's not, it's not a horse to be beat. It's a, it's a doctrine to, to be loved. So maybe, uh, Joe? Well, this might be a question. Maybe you probably talk about how it is. Could you address all the thousand years of animation, top of the timelines, or any of that sort of thing? Yeah, I skipped right over that. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's a whole big discussion. The second Peter, thousand years? Yeah, I was just wondering if. You know, or the millennium in Revelation 20, which? Well, actually, I was thinking of, I was thinking of Revelation. Okay, I'll answer that very briefly. 
Um, and in terms of big context, so like without going into the details of why people think it's dead. Yeah, yeah. So I'll give you what I. It's your typical reformed answer, and that is that thousand years uh, is referring to a perfect period of time between Christ's first coming and his second. The book of Revelation is a genre called apocalyptic literature. The reading rules, the hermeneutics for apocalyptic literature is numbers are used figuratively. You've got all kinds of beasts in there. You've got the sun being thrown into the ocean. And I, but I don't think that's going to happen literally. These are pictures of catastrophe drawn from Old Testament images largely. It's exactly what you'd expect. You come to the thousand-year reign, and now look, I'm not a dispensationalist. If I was, I couldn't be ordained with PCA, and that's fine. I think uh, Joe, this represents a perfect number, 10 to the third, 10 is a biblical number, 10 is a biblical number, that represents the time between Christ's first coming and his second. But there are Reformed people who are called historic amil, that is, they believe everything we do about eschatology, except there will be a literal... Uh, uh, Anybody in the room historic on Mill? Georgie Ladd variety? I think Claire Davis at Westminster Seminary who taught me there was a historic, historic, I'm saying it wrong. Historic pre mill. Historic pre mill, yeah. Not to be confused with dispensational pre mill. Yeah? So you kind of believe the same thing with, say, creation? Do I believe the same thing with creation? Yeah. I do not. Yeah. I believe that the days of creation are literal. I think that's the way it's presented to us in the text. There's nothing there that's demanding me to take it figuratively. There are people in our denomination who do take those days at length of time. So there's different views that are allowed on the PCA on the exact length of days. I take them as God said, hey, one day, morning, the evening, the next day. So that's the way I read those days. But this, there's nothing in the genre that demands me to take that literally, that number. Just like how many people are saved in the book of Revelation, earlier in the book? 144,000. Really? It's a, that's just a perfect number. It's the total number of God's people will be saved, right? There's a whole lot more number of that. The, the Jehovah's Witnesses used to say that's, they used to say that's the only number, and then they grew beyond that. That got to change that number. <laughs> or start cursing the church roll. <laughs> so, slightly different discussion, but when I, when I come to the days of creation, uh, there's, there's nothing de demanding that I take those days symbolically in the text. Nothing in the text demanding, of me anyway. And Jesus said, from the beginning of creation, he made them male and female. So Jesus seems to annex the creation of male and female at the very uh, beginning of the creation. If there was billions of years in between, then that, that sentence would be hard to understand from Jesus' point of view. But I am a six-day creationist. That's me. I think that's what the Bible teaches. Seems like our confession says the same. But there are different views that are permissible in the PCA. Uh, you've got the supplemental handout. I ran into some more verses. So, guess what? There's probably 50 I've missed. All right, Hebrews 4. Somebody read it for us. We'll see if we can do these in seven minutes. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Thanks, Michael. So what does verse 13 do to you? 
Should open your eyes and drop your jaw? What do we intuitively think? I alone know the secrets of my heart. Wrong, gong, you're off the show. Gong. Remember the gong show? No. (laughs) Nothing is hidden from his sight. Nothing. And what is this rest? I mean, we now have another word to put over here for believers. Rest. And there's different kinds of rest, right? There's resting, salvation rest. I'm tired of trying to be good enough for God. Oh, Jesus is my rest. That's entering the promised land. Where's he? That's that salvation event. Go ahead, Nate. We we have a specific type of word now, which is sharing the gospel with unbelievers, talking about working in the harvest and that sort of thing. That work's going to be done at this point because there's not going to be any ability for anyone new to know the Lord. So there's technically a type of work that we need to be doing now. That work's going to be over, so we're going to be right. Good. Well, we're Western that convert. There's no evangelism to do once Jesus comes, right? So, um, what? How does how does the writer of Hebrews connect this idea to God knows everything about you? What? How? What is he connected to? What's it like? The fact that God sees everything and knows everything. What's it like according to the verse? Sounds like an MRI and an X-ray. It's an MRI. It sounds like an MRI and an X-ray. So what's the only thing that you have in your hand that can do an MRI on your heart? The Word of God. It exposes the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This thing here, this is why we need a living daily relationship with the Word. To let it expose us. And do you have, have you had that experience? You're reading the Bible and you go, oh, I'm convicted, I'm shown. Yes, that's me. Oh, you've got my motives here. Oh, Lord. So that's how you should pray when you open the Bible, because he loves you. He wants to do surgery on your heart. What we hide from other people, we can't hide from the word. 1 Corinthians 3, 12 to 16. Paul writing. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else was building upon it. Let each one take care of how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than what is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Now, this is immediate references to pastors and ministers, isn't it? And what I've done in my ministry is going to be subjected to what on the great day? Fire. And in my ministry, there might be things that ended up being gold and silver, other things, wood and straw, right? Doing the right thing for the wrong reason or doing the wrong thing, right? There's going to be a day of accounting for my ministry. And by extension, all of us. Jesus is the foundation. We're building on that foundation. Um, And he basically says here, although works not done ultimately for God's glory are going to be burned up, the person doing them will be saved, but through the skin of his teeth. From a human point of view. He's not saved by those works. He'll be saved from that fire by being hidden in Christ. Hidden in cleft, hidden in the rock. Hidden, safe in he who is our refuge. 
Very sobering text. 1 Corinthians 4, 1 through 5. This is how men should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. Moreover, it is required stewards that may be found in But with me, it is a very small thing that I should judge by you or by anything before. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby aware. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time when the Lord comes. Who will bring to light things not in the darkness and will close the purposes of the heart? And each one will receive his commendation from God. Thank you. Everything's going to be revealed. The purposes of the heart, my motives. Paul's saying, I'm not sure I even always know my motives. You certainly can't judge my motives. I don't even know my motives sometimes. God does, and it'll be exposed. So we're serving Christ as stewards of the riches entrusted to us, resisting judging motives until the great day. Should you personally look at your motives and think about them? I think that was the point of the Hebrews 4 passage, yes. Okay, we don't really have time for the last one. You're probably familiar with it. It's Again, you're going to be uh, rewarded for what you reaped and sowed, and um, those who have will be given more. That's there. So we'll pick up next time, back in the main handout under Unbelief Denies This, and begin to tease out some observations and implications. I know it's laborious, I know it's slow, but this I don't even get enough of... Uh, what keeps you sober. Let me pray for us. Thank you for my brothers and sisters. You have given them an appetite for the word of God. And uh, thank you, what a miracle, that we would care what it says. And that we would, well, it just shows you've given us new hearts, Lord. So glory to you for the gift of regeneration. Now you are at work in us who believe, bringing to pass that which would please you. Give us sobriety. Give us to live eschatologically. In light of the last things, give us to know our motives. Give us to do works that are gold and silver, not straw and hay. Show us in our lives where that needs to change. Give us utter and great confidence in Christ that to be in in Him is to have life, to be assured of the resurrection of the body. Lord, use this teaching for the growth of our church, our families, and the good of the community as we take the gospel to those who desperately need to hear it. Give us opportunities this week to share the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all.